You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello, and welcome back to Women's Health Interrupted Field Trip. I'm Dr. Marina Adshade. And I'm Demara Featherstone. Our next stop on this field trip is Sociocultural Anthropology, where we will meet with Dr. Sari. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Okay, hello everybody. Today we are joined with the lovely Dr. Sari. Dr. Sari is a sociocultural anthropologist interested in transnational sexualities, migration, asylum, waiting, and queer and critical race theory, with a specific focus on the Middle East and its diasporas. So welcome, Dr. Sari. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So most of your academic career, you have focused on LGBTQ plus refugees seeking asylum. As we know, migration status is a huge aspect of socioeconomic status, and it can influence health really drastically. So from your experience, how have you seen migration status impact the well-being, mental and physical health of the refugees you've worked with? I've been working with LGBTQ refugees since 2014. And when I think about this question, the first thing that comes to my mind is a sentence, which is, waiting has made us sick. So I have heard this sentence from almost all of my interlocutors. And this notion of becoming sick or getting sick refers to emotional anxiety that refugees experience because of long waiting times and the physical health issues that they develop during this period of waiting because of the material conditions of their lives, like harsh working conditions or not having access to proper health care. So I would like to talk a little bit about these things and explain how this notion of becoming sick is related to people's migration experiences and their socioeconomic status. So refugees I work with spent many years waiting in Turkey, which is a transit country. So they are waiting in Turkey to be able to come to Canada or go to United States or a few European countries. And during that time of waiting, they do not have work permits, but they have to pay for their own expenses and basic needs like housing, food, bills and everything else that one needs to survive. So many refugees work informally. And this is the case with unauthorized informal migrant workers elsewhere. So LGBTQ refugees in Turkey also work under inhumane conditions, including heavy workloads, long working hours and insecure working conditions. So I did my fieldwork in a small town called Denizli in the southwest of Turkey. And most of my refugee interlocutors and friends in that city work in textile factories. So some of them also work in the service industry, like coffee shops and restaurants. And some of the gay men I know also work in construction jobs. So I have noticed that many people working in construction and manufacturing often develop musculoskeletal disorders due to demanding work conditions like intense and repetitive bodily movements, standing for 10 hours a day or lifting and carrying really heavy stuff. And as part of my ethnographic research, I also worked in a small textile factory alongside with my interlocutors. My initial hope was to work there at least for a month, but after only a week, I had to quit the job because I could no longer tolerate the waist and the shoulder pain I had. 
And in that textile factory, I've also noticed that refugees work without protective equipments like masks and gloves, and they develop a lot of health problems ranging from eczema to asthma. Most of them suffer from lung problems because they keep breathing in cotton dust. And at the end of a week, I was really scared that the job would do some permanent damage to my health. So this short research in the textile factory gave me an embodied first-hand understanding of how difficult and how bodily harming refugees' work conditions are. And this short experience also shows us how socioeconomic status impacts people's well-being differently because I was a citizen of Turkey and a researcher from a U.S. university. So I had the luxury to choose whether I could work more or whether I should quit the job. But my refugee interlocutors didn't have the same option of prioritizing their health over their financial survival because in order to survive, they have to continue working under these difficult, exploitative and damaging work conditions. And this creates a lot of health problems. So this is what many refugees mean when they say waiting has made us sick. And the second component of this notion of becoming sick is the mental health issues. So as I mentioned, refugees wait for many years and they wait without knowing when they would be resettled or which country would accept them. So there is a lot of uncertainty. And this unknowability of one's future is not an easy one to handle because I think we all want to have some kind of stability in our lives, some kind of security. We want to feel that we have some power over our lives, that we can control our lives, that we can plan at least for our near future. But in refugees' cases, none of this is possible because things change very quickly according to the larger political and economic issues. For instance, in 2017, when Donald Trump was elected as the president of the United States, he closed the borders from everyone from predominantly Muslim countries. And all of a sudden, refugee resettlement to U.S. has stopped completely. So this kind of abrupt changes and uncertainties in the asylum system creates a lot of stress and anxiety in refugees' lives. And finally, on top of all of these, when they wait in Turkey, LGBTQ refugees are also constantly subject to discrimination, abuse, and different forms of violence by locals, by public authorities. For instance, they always fear that they might be evicted from their apartments if their landlords or if their neighbors find out that they are LGBTQ. They are afraid that they might be subject to physical violence on the streets because of their refugeeness or because of their non-normative genders and sexual They are afraid that the Turkish state might try to deport them at any moment by using a simple excuse. So a combination of these issues, the uncertainty of the future and the insecurity of the present, create a lot of emotional and mental health problems in refugees' lives. So many people suffer from anxiety and stress. And of course, people do their best to maintain their emotional well-being. They try to keep themselves busy with other things. They spend time with their friends or they create mutual collective support mechanisms to cope with these feelings of exhaustion, boredom, insecurity and uncertainty. And they try to maintain their hope for a better future. 
but it's not always easy to do so. And unfortunately, many people I know have experienced severe depression at different stages of their waiting. So when they say waiting has made us sick, I think they refer to this combination of dire material condition of being a refugee as well as the emotional violence of waiting. So you talked about how being a refugee, waiting to find out where you're going to go, how that affects people's health. But I'm curious about how it affects people's access to health care. Yeah, well, access to affordable and proper health care constitutes one of the most significant problems in refugees' daily lives. So currently, refugees in Turkey do not have access to free health care. They are not covered by the national health insurance. In 2019, the Turkish government has abruptly announced that refugees are not eligible for free health insurance after their first year. And so accordingly, Turkey provides health care coverage to refugees only for their first year. And after that first year, refugees are expected to pay for their medical expenses on their own. And as you can imagine, this is really difficult because refugees do not have work permits in Turkey and they don't have any reliable financial support either. So this is a question for all of us. How someone with no employment, no financial support and no long-term legal status can afford to have access to healthcare? And the answer is most of the time they cannot. With this new regulation, the vast majority of refugees who have been in Turkey for, you know, more than one year are cut off from existing health services. And The only exception to this new regulation is the refugees with so-called special needs. And I'm saying so-called because what counts as special needs is arbitrarily decided by local asylum officers. So I interviewed a social worker in 2020 and she mentioned that usually children, elderly refugees, pregnant women and refugees with disabilities are found eligible for health insurance. So these are the groups that are considered as people with special needs, but transgender refugees and refugees living with HIV AIDS are not covered among the special needs and they are denied access to health insurance. So then the question is, right, how come pregnancy or disability makes someone a person with a special need, but living with HIV positive doesn't. So how I approach this question is, I think this shows us that public authorities have an enormous discretionary power in deciding what counts as special need and who should be eligible for health insurance and who doesn't. And if we take this kind of questioning one step further and think more politically, this also shows us that the immigration authorities decide whose lives and whose health matter and whose lives and whose well-being are not deemed as important. And LGBTQ refugees are often at the very bottom of this hierarchy of differential evaluation of life and health. So this is the legal political perspective on the question of access, but there are also other problems that impact people's access to healthcare services. So among them, the most important one I've observed is the language barrier. So in some cases, hospitals and different NGOs provide translation and interpreters for refugees, but most of the time refugees are really on their own and they face language barriers in their encounters with healthcare providers and it restricts their use of existing services. And finally, speaking of this question of access, I also want to mention a more intersectional approach. Refugees are excluded from healthcare 
because of their legal status, because they are refugees and they don't have health insurance, but also because LGBTQ refugees, they face additional challenges in hospitals, not only because of their refugeeness, but also because of the stigmatization of non-normative gender and sexuality. So I have found out that they are subject to homophobic and transphobic treatment. Sometimes they are called names by healthcare providers. Sometimes their problems are dismissed or not really taken seriously by the doctors. I have observed that trans and gender non-conforming refugees have particular problems. For instance, when their gender expression doesn't match the biological sex assignment on their ID cards, they are denied appointments. So each time they need to explain their gender and sexuality over and over again. And if you are a refugee with a kind of insecure legal status and limited language, it's not always easy to talk to strangers like doctors, nurses or other healthcare providers about your gender and sexuality because these are for many people intimate matters. And because of all of these restrictions and barriers, refugees experience significant challenges to their access to healthcare. And as you can imagine, this creates a lot of detrimental effects on their well-being. Yeah. Oh, so many layers. That ties to something you were chatting about a little bit earlier as well. And to do with the paper you were chatting about, the lesbian refugees in transit, the making of authenticity and legitimacy in Turkey, you speak about how specifically in this paper, these women's sexualities are persistently questioned, disbelieved, and they are considered straight until proven otherwise by these organizations they're trying to seek asylum through. And I'm just wondering how you have seen these women work to navigate these transitional spaces, negotiating and leveraging the different parts of their identities in the process, because in the country they're fleeing from, they're fleeing because of their sexuality and gender identity. In the country they've arrived in, in Turkey, they can experience this discrimination even in the healthcare system, like you just said. But then to these organizations that they're trying to seek final asylum through, they need to prove their identity, which in society they've forced to hide it because it can be detrimental to their health and well-being. So how is this possible for people to prove these identities to these organizations when their entire life they've had to keep them secret for their own safety. How are the people you're working with navigating through that? Yeah, exactly. In that article, I've written about how refugees in Turkey navigate different organizations at different scales, like local, national, international, and diasporic. So they follow up on their asylum claims, both with the Turkish state and other international asylum authorities, like the UNHCR and IUM, International Organization for Migration. They are also bounded by the immigration laws and regulations of the resettlement countries like the US and Canada. And they also work with a lot of NGOs, both from Turkey and abroad, when they need financial or legal assistance. And when my interlocutors navigate these different actors and different offices and organizations, they encounter different understandings of what is authentic, real queerness, and who is a proper lesbian or queer woman, and who should be eligible for these rights and resources. 
one of the main findings of this research, this paper was that women and refugees in general quickly learn this complicated system and they find out about different expectations and different requirements that these different organizations have. And then they strategically tailor their identities, their asylum narratives and their bodily performances to these different expectations. Many women have to do this navigation on a daily basis. When they go to asylum authorities, they need to perform a highly visible queerness and on the streets or in their workplaces they need to hide that queerness and instead embody some kind of cisgender straight identity to protect themselves from possible discrimination and homophobic transphobic violence. On the one hand, this kind of navigation shows us how creative, resourceful and strong refugees are, right? This is really important to emphasize because refugees, especially women and LGBTQ refugees, are often seen as passive victims of larger structural forces like patriarchy or homophobia. But here we see how they also reclaim their identities, their narratives, their bodies and sexualities, and they do it in a very strategic and creative ways. But when I say this, I also don't want to romanticize this navigation as resistance because this kind of work is emotionally and physically difficult. Because in order to protect yourself, you need to perform something. And then in order to have access to rights and resources, you need to perform something else. And within this system, you are not really allowed to be your fully authentic self. And you need to keep performing different parts of your identity to be able to get out of Turkey and go to the resettlement countries or to be eligible for healthcare or financial aid. And as I mentioned before, this creates a lot of insecurity and uncertainty and it paves the way to a lot of mental health issues in refugees' lives. So what do you think are the main takeaways from your research that you wish that women's health researchers were to incorporate into their own work? Well, I was thinking about the importance of socioeconomic status. I think we all should take into consideration how legal and socioeconomic status impact people's well-being and their access to healthcare. And I think by doing so, we have a chance to decentralize the citizen as a norm in health studies. When we study a certain subject, who is the main figure that we take as the center of our analysis? Thinking about these different legal and socioeconomic statuses has the potential to decentralize the citizen as the norm and all other people like immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, stateless people, or undocumented people as deviation from the norm. So I really would like to see this immigration and citizenship status incorporated into any health research because it's a very important component that enormously affects people's health. And second, I would like to see more inclusive studies on women's health, which include trans, non-binary and queer people as well. So as I mentioned, I have spent a lot of time in hospitals, in gynecologist offices. And most of the time I wasn't really with refugees who identify as women, but I was with people who self-identify as trans, queer, non-binary and gender non-conforming. And I've seen how they face additional challenging in accessing health services. What I've learned through my own research and something I would like to propose as an important takeaway from that research is to move beyond the biological category of womanhood towards a more inclusive and intersectional understanding of gender and sexuality. Because I think health and well-being and healthcare systems are 
the sites where these different intersections of different identities and different systems of power really come together and become very visible. So it's perfect site to understand the combinations, the intersections of legal status, socioeconomic status and gender and sexuality come together and what kinds of impacts they create on people's mental and physical well-being. Thank you, Dr. Sari, for joining us on this journey and to all of our listeners who've been along for the ride. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. And if you like the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcast to be notified when episodes drop every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into some of the resources we talked about today. Until next time, I'm Demera. And I'm Marina. Thanks for joining us on this journey. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 